Good morning. Uh, this week, we're, we're wrapping up Galatians. So if, if you're tired of hearing the words law, hopefully you're not tired of hearing the word gospel. Because <clears throat> if you do, we have problems. And you're really going to not enjoy your stay in this church for however long you're here. But the word law is getting irritating. And I think we can probably start to hopefully someday after this week move on from that. Um, this morning, we're going to wrap up the book. And we've been in the weeds for a while. right? The book of Galatians it's, it's very much, it's not just about law, it's a very legal type of book in itself. It's a, it's a, it's a work that Paul argues legally from, from very minutia, detailed perspective. If you are a lawyer or someday growing up, you know, you were told you probably should be a lawyer and that's just the way your brain works, you probably appreciate a book like this that just lays it out. You're like, well, why shouldn't we count on the law? Well, legally, you know, there was Abraham and it was first and so there's a precedent there and I, <clears throat> So that might be something that appeals to you. But this morning, before we close it, I want to just come from the weeds where our nose has been thick in, into, into the text, chapter by chapter. And I want to take a kind of bird's eye view and recount just how the book of Galatians is laid out. Because Paul doesn't just write expert legal type of work. Paul is also a masterful just writer in general. And so the way he organizes his books, if you ever have a chance to study any of Paul's epistles, you know, go to the introduction sections of various commentaries or study Bibles and just look at the outlines of the books of, you know, Romans or Corinthians or Ephesians or Galatians. And you'll see that he's a masterful organizer with how he puts things and makes his case from, like, movement to movement. And in, in the case of Galatians, we really have three movements, right? We have six chapters and three movements. And we've covered the first two, and today we're going to cover... The last movement. So just as a recap, you know, it's a beautiful organization. You have chapters 1 and 2, which talk about, it's movement 1, and it talks about the unpacking of the gospel. Right? You'll remember that Paul was making his case of the gospel. He was making his case about how he received it. Right? It didn't come from man, but directly through Christ. If you remember, Paul was Saul traveling on the Damascus Road, and Jesus immediately and directly appeared to him and said, Paul, why are you, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? And he became a Christian. And so it was, he, he, he received the gospel directly from Jesus. But then talks about legally how the apostles approved of his message. So when he's laying out his case, he's saying, listen, those who started this church, the first who were here, before Galatia ever was a thing as a church, they, they, they approved. Like I went and presented myself to them and they approve of this message. It's like the politician at the end, right? Like, I am blah, 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 and I approve of this message. Hi, I'm Paul, and every Christian leader you have that's Jewish says it's okay, so listen to me. Right? That's his argument. And then in, in the same movement, he talks about Peter being the hypocrite. If you remember, Peter was all with the Gentiles and the Greeks and the, the non-circumcised and friendly with them and approving of them until his Jewish friends came, and he wanted to look cool in front of them and was worried, and then all of a sudden, he, he dissed those guys. And it wasn't okay anymore. And Paul calls him out for his hypocrisy. So it's this laying out of the groundwork of what is the gospel? What does it mean that, that they can be part of this community? Movement two is all about the expansion of God's family. Right? It's about how, yeah, in time in the Old Testament, we had this, this Israelite people. right? And yes, God at that point gave us law and order and regulations and ceremonial laws and all these cleanliness and sacrificial laws, including circumcision, because it was all about the people of God were this one select tribe, this people group. 
should say 12 tribes. Someone's going to correct me on that. I said, actually, Vince, there's not one. There's 12. But one people. And now, with Jesus having come and died and risen and ascended, it's different. It's everyone now. It's no longer about this tribal group. And so the, the, the chapters 3 and 4 are all about the inclusion. That's where we talked about Abraham and the blessing that he received. And then we get into the idea of sonships and how we're, we're all sons and daughters inheriting the kingdom of God as his people. Right? How we are heirs to the kingdom. It's the expansion of the family. My, my, Britta's family on her dad's side is where we do Thanksgiving. And they rent out like a hotel banquet room. Some of them might be listening. And the goal of that family Thanksgiving seems to be like, how many people can we get to come to Thanksgiving? If you on Thanksgiving ever find yourself in Lexington, Virginia, just come to the Hampton Inn Hotel ballroom. And chances are you'll be family by the time you finish your dessert. All right? It's just the way it works. Right? That's, that's how the kingdom of God becomes. It's just a, yeah, you get to be an heir, and you get to be an heir, and everybody gets to be an heir and a car. Right? It's this big expansion. That's three and four. Five and six are where we find ourselves today. And it answers kind of the last question. We finished chapter four with a definitive, the law is not what saves us. It's not binding Right? The, the law isn't what it's about. It's about grace. It's not about what we do or how we perform. Like He, he just shirks the law. It's not totally irrelevant. It's, it's useful to some degree. But, but he just has this, this unemphasis of the law under the grace of Christ. And so if, you, if you're a, a, a Jew during that time, let's say you're not a hostile Jew to the, to the ideas of Paul, but you're trying to kind of figure it out. The, the logical kind of final question that you would have is, like last week we talked, what is the purpose of the law? This week I would say the question is, if the law isn't the relevant thing, like if the Galatians are doing this, if the people of God are doing this Christian thing without the law, how will they know how to obey God? If not for the law then how will they know what God wants of them? How will they know how to live for them? Remember, the law is a fence post. It's supposed to keep us straight and narrow. How on earth do we do this without the law? And the answer that Paul gives is, is in a question. Right? Paul gives us this answer at the outset of Galatians 5, but he starts with this weird conundrum. He says this, the problem with the reliance of the law, this isn't a quote, Good as it is, is that it cannot force obedience. Right? A stop sign can't make you stop your car. It's really useful in that it can tell you, you should probably stop here. If you don't, you might get hit by a semi-truck. But it can't make you stop. It's not like if you blow a stop sign, the sign will come down and go, no. It's just going to stay there and laugh at you while you get hit by another car. It can't force obedience. The law is the same way. Paul's saying the, the law is, is, is not sufficient. It's not, it's not the thing because it can't make us listen to it. I can tell you murder is wrong. I can't restrain you from murdering somebody if you want to. Please don't. And if you do, please not me. <laughs> Depending on how long the sermon goes, you might be tempted. But... But that's, that's the key, is the law, it's, it can't be the thing that's, that, that helps us, that, that's ultimately the guide, because it's not powerful enough. 
And if you want to know how powerful and not powerful enough it is, all you have to do is look at all of Israelite history. What's the whole Old Testament? From the moment in Exodus the people get the law, every single movement of every single chapter of every single book of the Old Testament on is a, is a picture of the Israelites miserably failing to keep it. Right? If the rules and regulations, as the Pharisees put it, are so star-spangled awesome, then how on earth is it that for centuries since they've had it, the Israelites have done nothing but ejected away from them? It hasn't gotten them to where they wanted to go. Right? Earlier this year, we were in Judges. What's the point of Judges? They have the law. It keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Right? And towards the end of the Old Testament, we see that the people of God are actually exiled from the land. God punishes them because they're so bad at keeping the law that they're not worthy of being in the land anymore. And so he sends them into exile under the Babylonians and Assyrians. And eventually they get to crawl their way back and kind of try to rebuild. You see things like Nehemiah where the wall you know, gets rebuilt. And all these, all these stories of them trying to piece their, their life under God back together. But by the time we get to Jesus, there is zero evidence. There's not a shred of evidence that suggests that the law has done a thing to make God's people actually more godly. So Paul says, I'll tell you how we do this, but before I do, just so you understand, the law is not what's going to do it. Because if it was, we've got 100, year, 100 years of experience seeing it miserably fail. So even if I can't tell you how we live for God in a godly way without it, it still isn't relevant because it's not helping. Look at you, right? And so then Paul gives us a question. The final two chapters kind of answer this question. How, if we are adopted sons of this new family, do we make the transformation? And how, if not for the law, do we actually change and shape ourselves as the people of God? And the answer that Paul gives is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. He tells us that it is through the Spirit that we, as God's people, will become obedient and grow into the likeness of Christ. And so that's how we get to this passage, our main passage for today. It's the well-known passage of the fruits of the Spirit. As Paul starts in chapter 5, he explains, it's not by law, it's by Spirit. And then he digs into what it means to have the Holy Spirit as part of our life. And how it contrasts with the way things were before God gave it to us. And so let's stand together and hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16 through 26. And this should be one that, if you've been in church for like a month, this is probably familiar to you. You've at least heard part of it. But I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the blacklist. No one wants that list. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Word of the Lord. You can have a seat. I'm working hard on remembering to tell you that you're allowed to sit down. I'm going to get there. I swear, someday I'll just have it perfect down. In the meantime, just sit whenever you want. I'm not, I'm not your boss. You can stand and sit as you desire. So in this passage, Paul sets up this really stark contrast. And it sounds like, you know, we're talking about flesh and spirit and these kind of contrasting ways. All he's saying is, look, under the law, without the Holy Spirit, here's what, not just the list of things you shouldn't do, but here is what life has actually looked like, right? And if you look at the list, not just at the time of Galatia, but even today, right? We have all these things. We have a world that's full of sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries. Anybody here have dissensions with somebody? That's me. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, right? This is what the world looks like apart from the Holy Spirit's intervention, even when they had the law. You can go to any period in the Old Testament, and there are examples of all of these things happening in that period. Even when in the judges cycles, when they have a new judge and it said people obeyed the Lord for a time, it wasn't perfect. These things still all existed. Right? There is never a point in history since the, the, the population of mankind has existed where these things have not been part of the reality of the human experience. They just are. And, and I'm not saying that every one of you has all of these things going on. I really, I would hope not, right? That's not what I'm saying. So you're sitting there like, wait, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not drunk right now. That's okay. That's good, actually. But what I'm saying is the world has these things as part of it. And you can probably look at that list, and I guarantee each of you could at least pick four or five things off of there that you're like, yeah, I have envy on a regular basis. I have envy right now. This morning, Roger and Marsha came in with biscuits, and I had envy because they looked good, and I wanted some. <laughs> I might get some after church. Right? But we have these things as part of our reality. And so Paul's saying, without the Holy Spirit, that's what it looks like. But with the Holy Spirit things come a little bit different. You get the blessing of the Holy Spirit, which brings with it the fruits of the Spirit. They're called the fruits of the Spirit because just as we are called to bear fruit, right? The fruit is the analogy in Scripture that's used as like the product of whatever you are or do, right? If you're, if you're at work uh, as a lawyer, the, the fruit of your labor is how many cases are you winning, right? And how much are you getting for your clients who deserve restitution, right? Like, what, what is the work that you're doing and what you're producing? That's the fruits of your labor. We all know that phrase. So when he's saying the fruits of the Spirit, it's if we have the Holy Spirit, which we do, then inevitably it will produce fruits in us as a result of having the Holy Spirit. And that's what these fruits are. We have all of them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those are the things that start to come in and replace the other stuff. 
And the way that we do it is not by law, not by following all the Christian rules and regulations, not by being in church with perfect attendance, not by making sure we attend every Bible study, not by regimenting ourselves and just having the discipline to make sure we get up and do our devotions every morning. It's not by those things that we will achieve this list. We go from list A to list B by one way and one way only, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a matter of fact, Paul starts the whole passage with a promise of that. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not succumb to the desires of the flesh. You might say to me, well, Vince, I succumb to the desires of the flesh on a regular basis. I'm not going to tell you the ways it happens because that's between me and God. And I don't want you to know because you'll look down on me, but it happens all the time. And I would say, yeah, it happens to me too. Well, we don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit yet, but Paul does promise us that the Spirit will enable us to follow the Lord. Our sin prevents us. Our sin keeps us in list A. The Spirit moves us to list B. It's not going to be your efforts that move you there. It's going to be the work of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord promises us that when he gives us the Spirit, he gives us all of these gifts over time. He will be working within us to produce all of these. There's such a thing as spiritual gifts, right? Things like preaching and hospitality and and the like. We don't all have every spiritual gift, right? Some of us have the spiritual gift of hospitality. You love having people to your house. You love inviting people into your life, right? Your ideal day is just like 40 people at your place for dinner, just gathering and being and all that stuff. Some of you, that sounds like a nightmare, you're like, I have to clean my, I don't want anybody in my house. Can we meet at Panera so I don't have to, like, let you see my place? Or think about what to make for dinner for you, right? Some of us don't have every spiritual gift, but every one of us is promised that the Spirit works in us all of those fruits over time, right? Where there's envy, there will be patience. We won't worry about what everybody else has, but we'll just patiently wait for what the Lord has in store for us, Where there's anger and strife, the Spirit moves us into an arena of peace. And that's the promise that we get. And so for the Galatians, here's then the the final dilemma. And maybe not just for Galatians in the book, but for the whole of the Christian life. How the heck do we walk in the Spirit? How do we do it? And if I could give you a great instruction manual of like 1 through 10, do these 10 things and you'll be walking in the Spirit... Not all of us would be perfect Christians. You know, we could just go home. Or to heaven, sing hallelujah over and over and over again. Right? But it's not that simple. But there are ways, there's things that we can do. And I think one of the problems is, and this is especially true in the Presbyterian Church, we don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. Right? We don't. The Holy Spirit, in, in, in a lot of Reformed contexts, but definitely in, in every church that has a Presbyterian on it, the Holy Spirit is like the weird uncle of the Trinity, right? And the way that, I, that, that you know that's true is because if I, if I said, num- there's two ways you know it's true. Number one, the Holy Spirit, we say it, not he. Watch yourself when you do it next time. I sometimes am still guilty of this. The Holy Spirit is a he. It's a person. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we say it. Because it's so obscure to us that we don't even want to personify it unless we're thinking clearly. 
The other way that I know is that if I asked you, what is the role of the Father in the Trinity? You could, all, you could probably tell me. You may not even be a Christian. You could say the role of the Father. Well, he creates, he sustains and upholds by his power. He is the judge at the end of all days. Or you get all these things. What is the role of Jesus? Jesus is the son that was sent to be the sacrifice for our sins. What is the Holy Spirit's role? I don't know, to float in the sky and grant us wishes? Most of us, like, have a harder time articulating really what the role of the Holy Spirit is. And one of the, one of the things that happened um, in, in the Reformation is that we, we, we went so hard against some of the church at that time that we, that we started to become, like, the, the Reformed faith is full of people that are hyper-rationalists. It's part of why I'm a Presbyterian pastor, because I'm a hyper-rationalist. Right? I like things in order, and I like to argue things from a legal perspective. I love apologetics and the study of those. Uh, but one of the things that happens is the, the experiential, kind of less clearly defined part, the supernatural, if you will, of the faith, kind of is taking a back burner in, in the churches in the Presbyterian world and some other places. Right? Now, there's some churches you'll go to where the Holy Spirit seems to be all that they'd ever talk about. Right? You can walk into certain Pentecostal contexts, and you're like, do you, like, do you have a Bible in this building? Do you ever open it and study it? Or do you just put snakes on your backs and slay yourselves in the spirit, whatever that means, right? And so we can go kind of one way or the other. We over or we underemphasize the Holy Spirit. But I don't think we talk about him and his role enough in the context of the church. And so that's, that's part of the detriment is I think it's important that as we preach and teach and study God's word, that we do that more often, that we spend time in the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, I just want to end with taking a look at kind of the role of the Holy Spirit and practically some of the ways that we can order our lives in order to start to walk with the Spirit so that he can transform us and shape us and allow us to move more and more into living the life after Christ and after God's ways. And so there's two, two things to start with before we get into our list. Number one, we start by understanding that the Holy Spirit is in every way supernatural. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate with clean lines within the order of the nature and, and the scientific method that we experience and understand as part of the, the humanity and, and the culture that we're in. Right? We, the Holy Spirit operates outside of that. He doesn't care about the laws of physics. He doesn't care about how stuff is supposed to work. Right? The, the Holy Spirit moves in ways that we very often just have to admit we cannot understand. And so one of the things you'll notice is if, you, if you've walked with Christ for a while and you're, you're, you're kind of learning and growing and being shaped by the word of God and the spirit is at work in your life, is you'll have times where you think back and you go, man, like, I, there's some ways in which I grew in godliness. Like, it just, like, I just, it happened. Like, three years ago, this wasn't how I was thinking. But man, it just, right, the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. The Holy Spirit moves us to do things and say things, even sometimes beyond our control. It's, it's fun. Uh, a lot of times after church, I'll talk to, I'll talk to Mark, because uh, he teaches the, a Sunday school class in there right after. And him and I never, like, collaborate. Like, we're not, we're not in collusion with one another. At least if we are, we'll never tell. We'll be our secret, right? But we don't, like, talk about, I don't know what he's covering. I don't know what you covered today. I know what books you're in, but I don't know what exactly section-wise you were at today. And he doesn't know what my sermon's going to be on, other than maybe kind of the text we're in, right? And so there's so many times that afterwards, it's like, you know, we were just talking about that one aspect of what you're preaching about. 
It's the Holy Spirit working. It moves us to share things that start to connect the dots. And so someone will go to that study and hear something, and they'll come here, and they go, yeah, we were just talking about that. That's so weird. It's not weird. It's the Holy Spirit. There's times where the Holy Spirit prompts us to have conversations or to say things a certain way, and it hits somebody in a way that they've never thought of before. Right? Maybe you've had the opportunity to, to share Christ with somebody and, and bring them to, to know the Lord Jesus, and you are one part of the puzzle of dozens of people who've done the work to get that person from A to B, right? You were just the final piece, and you go back and you say, yeah, I don't know why. I don't know what prompted me to, I normally don't just go up and talk to people like that, but today I did. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in a way that is supernatural. We don't understand how or why he does what he does at times. Right? And so that's, that's the first thing. The second is this. The Holy Spirit is someone that we are given by the Father in a supernatural way. Right? It's a gift of God. The Holy Spirit inhabits us. Ezekiel 36 26 and 27 says this, A new heart, this is the prophecy of the Holy Spirit coming, A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. The Lord will put the Holy Spirit in, inside of the, the facets of who we are and actually cause obedience within us supernaturally if we allow the spirit to inhabit us as God's people that's why you will look sometimes and wonder man how did I grow in that way I wasn't trying I just find myself naturally inclined to to obey in some ways that I that I hadn't before I feel convicted of something that I didn't know was sin two months ago and now I'm kind of like ah, I don't even want to be in that realm or arena anymore the Holy Spirit will do that. He will literally change our hearts. That's why when we have people in this world that are walking in sin, and you go, how could I ever stop? Pray to stop. Well, what's that going to do? The Holy Spirit can actually make you want to stop. Right? And it's not like a zombie remote control. But it's, it's, it's changing our hearts from within so that we start to desire the things of God. That's what sanctification is is the Spirit being at work in our lives over and over and over again, over a long period of time, to reshape and restructure our hearts. Right? So sometimes we might pray for something, and the Lord answers that prayer, yes, but not by giving us what we want, but by changing what we want. And we start to notice that the things we wanted years ago aren't even the things we want anymore. Right? The Spirit does that. And so here's, here, here's a couple ways... Uh, that, we, that we can kind of take practical steps in, in order to, to find ourselves moving the Spirit. And before, before I, I give them to you, I, I want to give you a caveat. Um, if the Spirit is supernatural and works the way that we, doesn't work the way that we want Him to necessarily, right? doesn't do what we would expect, then the steps that we take have their limits. Um, and the best analogy that I've heard of this is a pastor named Matt Chandler, at this point probably more than 10 years ago, was talking about how the Holy Spirit works and used the analogy of a faucet. Right? What, what he said was there, there are things that we can do to, to make sure that we start to walk in the Spirit and live within the realm of the Holy Spirit, but we can't make the Spirit do its work. And so 
what we do is we, we have practices, practical things that we engage with, that we do, that move us underneath the faucet. But we can't turn it on. But when the Holy Spirit does decide to turn it on, to pour itself out, we'll be underneath there so we actually get drenched. So it's not like, don't go home and say, if I do these five things, I will live a perfect life. In the, no, but, but it moves you to a place where, where you're ready for the Holy Spirit to begin his work. And so that's, that's, that's the caveat. Just understand that, right? That, that, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Okay. Um, I just realized there's a quote that I didn't put in. Oh, anyway. That being said, there's some practical things. So number one, prayer. And it sounds odd. Um, but since the Spirit is a supernatural thing, we, we use a supernatural means of invoking the Spirit's work in our lives. If you feel like the Spirit is not at work in you, pray that He will be. Pray to the Holy Spirit. When you pray, what's your prayer? Lord, dear Lord, dear God, dear Jesus. Right? Do we ever pray? Do you ever, do you ever think of actually praying directly to the Holy Spirit, to that third of the Trinity? Right, don't go, dear, dear Father, say, Holy Spirit, I need your guidance in this. I need you to pour into me and, and tell me what to do here and, and show me a path forward and open windows and close doors so that I might walk in the way that you have set before me. Holy Spirit, come. Right? We, we pray and we seek the Holy Spirit. You ask him to enter within you and to do a work if you feel like he isn't. The first thing we have to do is to pray. All, it's probably true for anything in the Christian life. Any sermon when we have a list of things to do, prayer is probably always the good first start. Right? Second is this. Grow in reinforcing your confidence in the Spirit. I would advise you to spend some time as we close Galatians to go home over the next week or two and to do some study in Scripture about the Holy Spirit. Look at places where the Spirit is talked about in God's Word, both in Old Testament prophecy and in New Testament fulfillment, you know, especially places like the book of Acts or some of the epistles that talk about the way the Spirit works, or prophecies like Ezekiel that talk about the role of the Spirit when He does come. Right? And familiarize yourself with the promises so that you, you see the way that God promises to use the Spirit in your life and you grow in confidence of what his role is, understand how he functions, and so learn to, to, to trust in kind of the ways that he's working in your life and understand them when they come. So you grow in confidence. Number three, you understand how the Spirit operates. Right? You start to think and learn the ways that the Holy Spirit moves you. Right? A lot of times he does a couple things. Sometimes he outright opens and closes doors in our lives. Right? Maybe you get fired from a job because the Lord doesn't want you to be in it. There's times where the Spirit moves in ways that we that are beyond our control. That just like whatever He wants us to do or move or think, He just forces us into it. He kind of shoves us with a boot. Right? There's times the Holy Spirit nudges us. You know, you're standing in the church lobby. There's someone standing there that you you feel just like an overwhelming need to just. Nah, I feel like I should need to go talk to that person. I don't. Do it. Like you, you learn the ways that he works. And you begin looking for things in life that the Holy Spirit may be trying to communicate. So you learn the way he operates. Number four, you actually have to act. When you feel or perceive that the Spirit is moving in your life and moving you in directions and pushing you towards something or nudging you, don't ignore it. 
oh, the amount of times that I've ignored the Holy Spirit. He's going, Vince, go do that thing. I don't want to. I'm worried about what will happen if I do. I'd rather go home and watch TV. I'm tired. When the Holy Spirit moves and nudges us, start to act on those things. And what will happen is you'll start to see things happen that are kind of unnatural. You'll say, yeah, I had that conversation. I'm like, man, what came out of that? Crazy. And number five, reflect. I'm not one. There's like circles of Christianity. I remember like having students at CBCA. And CBCA teaches you that if you're a Christian and you don't journal, that you're not really a Christian. Um, that's not true. So if, you're, if the idea of journaling sounds good to you, don't do that. But find a way, some intentional time, daily, weekly, monthly, whatever you want to make your regimen. But, but think about it and make a regimen to reflect on the times that you felt the Holy Spirit at work. To think about your week. One of the things that's detrimental to the culture that we're in is we're so fast-paced that we never actually pause to unpack and reflect on the things that we're doing and thinking and saying. Right? We don't, you know, I, I don't go home at the end of a sermon and go, oh, man, let me, let me listen back and think about everything I just said. I don't have time for that. There's like 50 things to do Monday morning when I get here. Right? Like we, with the pace of life, like think of how much info and life and stuff and decision-making we just absorb and spit out and how little time we actually spend just sitting in stillness and thinking about what we're doing or have done. Processing information that's come in. How many of you like have read an article and then just taken like 20 minutes to just think about it? Like, what's it saying to me? Now I'll read something on the Gospel Coalition and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That's real fascinating. Share. And then I like do other things. Instead of taking the time to sit and go, yeah, maybe reflect. One of the ways that we move under the faucet so that we get wet is we reflect and we start to internalize all the ways. Because one of the things you'll realize is the Holy Spirit is working in your life way more than you think he is. And you don't know it because you're not reflecting on it. You're just letting it pass by. So take a moment, daily, weekly, monthly. Think about it. And if journaling is your thing, start to write down. Now, I felt the nudge to do this today, and I did it, and here's what happened. And you can go back and see all the ways. And you start to learn that, wow, the Spirit works in my life way more intensely and intentionally than I think or thought he ever did. And the next thing you know is you're finding yourself walking more and more in step with the Holy Spirit. There's a quote, um, a guy named Todd Wilson, and he wrote one of the many good commentaries on, on Galatians. It's the Preaching the Word commentary series. It's an excellent series for almost any book of, of God's Word. Um, but he, he has this quote at, kind of at the end of the time, and it, it's a good summary not just of this, but it's a good summary of, of really the whole book and thrust of Galatians, and, and even beyond that, the whole message of, of Christianity and the gospel. And so I, I want to close our whole time with, with that quote and then just a brief word, and then we'll, we'll wrap up this, this really neat uh, legal text. Um, here's what he says to kind of summarize the whole thing. The logic of the gospel is not God has saved you because of the good things you've done for him, nor is it God has saved you through his mercy, now it's your turn to do something for him. A lot of us think that. Instead, 
It is God's love for you is so great that he is not going to be satisfied until you are wholly and completely the person that you were created to be. Utterly free to enjoy love and peace and all else that comes through communion with him. That's the message of Galatians. We don't obey so that God loves us. We don't even obey out of some compulsion because God loves us, has loved us first. We obey because we understand that the one who created us loves us deeply. He loves us so deeply and he cares about us so much that he wants for us every fullness of joy and freedom that we can understand. Not the cheap freedom. Not the cheap freedom of this world that says, I get to just do whatever I want, right? That's what every argument about freedom in this world is. Whatever political fight there is, it's all about, well, I should have freedom and autonomy. It's a cheap and a fake freedom that the world is peddling to you. Because it is not the way you were created as a human to be by the one who created you, right? But instead, God is relentless. He is relentless, and he will fight tooth and nail till death to transform you into that life of joy and freedom. He'll do everything, and he'll give up everything. He gave his only son for that cause, not so that you could be some begrudgingly obedient Christian who goes through the motions so that he'll be happy with you. Not because you feel so guilty about the fact that he died on the cross for you that you lead every Bible study you can because somehow you got to make up and pay for it. You're never going to pay for it. It's a debt with 400% interest and you can't make the minimum payment. You're never getting out of that debt on your own. But we obey because we say, you know what? I trust that the one who made me loved me so much that he died for me, he paid the penalties, he made me righteous out of his own work, and then he gives me the spirit because he wants to see me transformed more and more into what true joy and true freedom will bring to us. That's what Paul is arguing. And that's why he says the law and legalism and self-righteousness and pharisaical behavior has no place in the kingdom of God because it destroys everything about that message. So the question to you is, are you going to take some time and just seek that out? Are you going to press into the things that God wants for you and stop trying to legally live up to whatever standard that you think he has set for you? The standard he has set, you can't meet. I don't care how hard you try. Stop trying. Start living and walking in the spirit instead. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you not only call us to obedience, but that you understand how incapable we are even to obey you after the cross. Lord, we live in this weird reality of the already and not yet. You've come and you've paid the penalty for our sins, but we still live in this sinful world. And so, Lord, we praise you that you give us the gift of your spirit to enable us to live according to the way that you've set out for us. Lord, we we acknowledge and we confess that those ways are not begrudging things, but that lead us to joy and freedom. And Lord, we want to trust in you and we want to believe that your ways forward are not just rules and regulations meant to kill our freedom and autonomy, but that you have made those things, that you've created us in a certain way 
and that if we trust you and if we obey with you, even when it seems counter to the world, that that's where true joy and true freedom will lie. Thank you that you love us so much that not only do you send your son, but that you will relentlessly pursue us through the Spirit's work to make us more and more worshipers and glory givers to you. We pray that each and every one of us might live into the truth and the reality of that, of that first statement of Westminster. As the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, Lord. We pray that we might find enjoyment in you in your ways through the power of the Spirit working in our lives. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. And all his people said, Amen.